0: You're listening to Two Guys Talking Wine with Michael Pincus and Andre Pru. All right, so full disclosure, we're recording this podcast at the same time as we recorded the last one. So it is still Saturday morning in Australia, Friday evening in Toronto, and I am joined by...
1: Michael Pincus, MichaelPincusWineReview.com. And
0: we're about to get into one of my favorite topics because... I'm generally the sort of guy where if I don't have anything nice to say, I don't say anything at all. But Are for some me? reason, I can't keep my mouth shut about Marlborough Sauvignon Blanc.
1: Oh, so we're going South Island now.
0: Yes. Oh, uh, I see. We're going down. And we actually have, uh, we're going to get to it a little bit later on in the podcast, but another one of our repeat guests, uh, Matt Mitchell from Marisco, one of our most fun podcasts that we've recorded. And even while you were recording the podcast with him, you had the gall to rub it in my face that you were enjoying the wines with him. Uh, Granted, I was at the uh, Niagara Ice Wine Gala at that time, so we were both having fun.
1: Yes, uh, Matt uh, was great. He was a lot of fun, and you, at one point, uh, you and I were texting back and forth, and you were sending pictures of yourself, holding (laughs) up certain digits, and uh, Matt wanted to let you know that he returns the digit. It wasn't directed at him.
0: It was directed at you. It was directed at you. Oh, come on. I love Matt. There's no way I would ever flip Matt off, but you, on the other hand, deserve it daily.
1: Well, at some point, uh, I remember you saying to him, send me two bottles of this wine, and I'll send you two bottles of something that that you're uh, currently working on. (laughs) And and I sent you the picture of him absolutely laughing at that. Oh, And I think the caption was, why would I trade you for something that I know is already good?
0: Oh, that's too funny. That's too funny. So, you know what? I'm going to do the same thing uh, that we talked about on the on the North Island because it was a great way to, to set it up. And I don't just want to shit on this the South Island because I know there's great wines there and we've had a chance to taste uh, a lot of them to, uh, together and apart. Uh, but if you had to describe the South Island in five words, what would you say? No hyphenating this time. Okay.
1: Word one gorgeous, like the South Island That's five compared words. to the North Island That's five is words. so much more beautiful. It. You hit your five words. Okay, gorgeous, I know. Alright, but you, you just gotta see it. Okay. Listen to the first podcast to understand why the South Island is so much more gorgeous. Okay, so gorgeous, Sauvignon Blanc, Pinot Noir.
0: You know, I'll give you two more words. I'm gonna hyphenate those because that cut makes it really short. Give me two more.
1: <laughs> see, I told <got> you. Um... <laughs> L- lakes um, and uh, Central Otago.
0: Okay, so yep. uh, you know what? Maybe maybe I'll get into into. Let, let, let's dive right into Sauvignon Blanc. Is this style of Sauvignon Blanc that's so popular in Ontario? What you can expect if you go down to the South Island and do some tasting?
1: No. I can tell you that what the LCBO is bringing up is what we all expect to see from Sauvignon Blanc. What what New Zealand winemakers are realizing is they cannot longer be that one-trick pony, and they are trying to make different kinds of Sauvignon Blanc. As I mentioned, in the North Island, they're using some barrels, they're using Lee's Contact. Now the, the South Island, Marlborough, is also getting into that kind of adding texture, adding interesting uh, elements to Sauvignon Blanc, maybe add a little semillon while you're at it, anything they can do to try and break away from what is their calling card, and yes, there are those that are made because that is what people expect, but if you go with, like, say, a reserve Sauvignon Blanc or um, a single vineyard Sauvignon Blanc, you're going to find something really different, really unique for the area, well how has the market been- but they still have to get that, that greenness because, you know, they they are they are kind of on the cusp of, of a growing area. You have to understand that there is always going to be unless it's a really fantastic season, they're always going to have that little bit of greenness because some of the fruit does become underripe because they just can't ripen it always.
0: Okay, well if they're starting to shift that style, um, I mean, is I don't know if you've spoken to any of the people that you visited about this, but are they not worried that the market's going to revolt? I mean, there's an expectation when you pick up a bottle of Marlborough Sauvignon to have these really amplified, intense, you know, gooseberry, green pepper, asparagus notes. And if you start shifting and becoming a little bit more tropical, a little bit rounder, a little bit bigger mouthfeel, I mean, it's almost like you're... Undergoing a bit of a midlife crisis or identity crisis, and are they not worried the market is going to revolt?
1: But you got to remember, it's a very young industry. We're looking at thirty to forty years as an industry, just like Ontario. Like we are, the similarities between New Zealand and Ontario is amazing. The real difference from New Zealand to Ontario, if I can get into this quickly, is that New Zealand is united in what they are doing. They don't have five bodies. The government for funding For marketing for everything These guys are all united in everything they do I'm getting off my soapbox Andre um, But you know if we just Had one, one Body that went to the government And said this is what we'd like to do I think we'd be heads and tails Above where we should be That being said uh, They still make That style of Sauvignon Blanc You don't like okay. It's that second and third and fourth level of sauvignon blanc that they make that are different
0: and how big how high does the price jump because i mean it's the other thing that really kind of drives me nuts about new zealand sauvignon blanc is the price is i feel a little high for what you're getting when it's that amplified vegetal notes like they push on i think kim crawford is 17.95 a bottle at the lcbo right now What, what sort of price point are you looking at for those second third and fourth tier bottles in new zealand
1: I think you're only raising yourself up about $5, 10 depending, you know, if you're going single vineyard, you know, Fumé Blanc style, you're raising, you know, 10 to 15 maybe. But I think you're still uh, in $30 range or so.
0: Okay, that's not bad. So let's okay. m- yeah. let's move along to uh, Pinot Noir. Now, one thing that we don't talk about often enough, because I know you know that I'm a little bit crazy for these wines. The, the stuff that makes it through the LCBO is, it's all very reasonable priced uh very rarely do they have any misses a lot of really nice fruit balanced with great acidity it's sort of like right on it, it reminds me a little bit of um it's kind of like diet oregon i mean the wines don't have a lot of that intensity that you get when you pick up a, a bottle of, of oregon wine but you're also not spending as much money as you do when you're when you're buying a bottle of, of wine from uh from oregon it, it's a great place to to pick up a bottle of wine, a bottle of Pinot Noir that tastes like Pinot but doesn't break the bank.
1: And your question is again?
0: Uh, well, tell me your impressions on uh, New, Zealand, New Zealand Pinot Noir. What have you discovered on your trip, Michael?
1: <laughs> I guess I was trying to figure out where you were going with your Pinot Noir. Uh, with your you pinot know, Noir soapbox. no, I, know. I went. Because...
0: I went. I went on a bit of a, a bit of a rant because I think it is one thing we don't see. As many bottles of New Zealand Pinot Noir in Ontario as we could or or should, and it is something that it is going to have its time. It is going to be one of the next big things because of how value priced it is. And I don't know if you agree or disagree with me, but that's just that's my theory.
1: Well, I I, I can tell you there's there's really the there's really two major Pinot Noirs in the South Island. You got the Marlboro Virgin, which is the you know really juicy version of Pinot and in the south uh, in in the central Otago region which is a little further south you get a little more weight a little more structure a little more je ne sais quoi uh, about the Pinot that just it's got a little more balls I guess and it's and it's more interesting uh, than Marlboro Uh, Marlboro is good it's tasty as I said tasty juicy really interesting stuff but it's, it's that central Otago stuff that I wish the LCBO would bring a heck of a lot more in because that's the stuff that's going to make you go, hey, wait a second. New Zealand has got Pinot down pretty good, especially in that region.
0: So what would you say is your biggest surprise that you've discovered on the South Island?
1: Sparkling wine. Go on. Yes. So uh, the whole time I was in the North Island, it was like nobody made sparkling wine. I was like... Does anybody have anything with bubbles here? And my also my biggest worry was that I was just going to get sparkling Sauvignon Blanc, which somebody told me was a fad. It's now supposedly I don't know if it's true, but I didn't see any gone. Like it's almost wiped out from the market because they realized they shouldn't be making this.
0: And what are the varietals they're working with? Because
1: and it's it's a perfect climate for sparkling wine. Some great sparkling wines here: Nautilus, Cloudy Bay. Palliser. Now, Palliser's on the North Island, but they were the first sparkling wine I tried while I was in um, while I was here. It, well, yeah, while I was in New Zealand. Um, but there were so many great. Oh, Alan Scott, he made four or five of them. He's making one in the central Otago. These guys were making great sparkling wine that I could just sit and drink all day.
0: Well, there we go. So now we're going to get to the part of the program where you rub it in my face that I'm not there. And
1: you had a chance to talk to some winemakers. Oh, did I speak to some good people? And they all love you, Andre. Even from afar, everybody loves Andre.
0: Well, let's see how this went.
1: Andre, I'm here with uh, Clive Jones of Nautilus. And uh, we just did a tasting of uh, some barrels. We did some tastings of some tanks. I know you don't like Sauvignon Blanc, but I know that that Clive is doing something different, and I believe the region is doing something different. So, Clive, I'm going to start with you and ask, what what's the changing face of Marlborough Sauvignon Blanc? Let's start there.
2: Well, I think,
3: you know, as a region, we've, uh, we've been doing it for sort of 20-plus years now, and, you know, it's fair to say we're getting a much better understanding of uh, sub-regionality, of, you know, Sauvignon Blanc is grown throughout Marlborough, but it's certainly not all the same. So, when you start delving into that sub regional uh, issue, you know, off the stones you get more tropical characters, off the south side of the valley you get more gooseberry and capsicum, and the Awateri is known, you know, which is the next valley to the south, is known much more for um, tomato leaf or basil type characters, so slightly more herbal influence. Um, so, that's from a vineyard point of view. and in the wineries, we're, we're learning a lot more about um, how to handle the fruit and how, how that can influence the resulting wine style. Um, working with lees, working with barrels, working with natural yeasts or non traditional wine yeasts, and just looking at adding layers of complexity into the wine.
1: So, you let me try something you called uh, paper, if I'm not mistaken. Paper,
3: paper Novelist.
1: So what was the, the big difference in that? I, I, I tasted it, but I, I'd like the winemaker's point of view of, of what you were doing differently to not give it that same old, same old, grassy, gooseberry, uh, cat's pea, all those wonderful things I'm sure you'll love to hear.
3: Well, you, I mean, the, the, the classic style, which I'll refer to, which is that sort of fresh, vibrant, zingy um, style that the world fell in love with, with Marlborough Sauvignon Blanc. You know, the not particularly, no. But um, <coughs> they can have a sweaty character too, which is you know, so cat pee and armpit. You know, they're not the best descriptors, but um, but we, you know, that classic style is very, very well established. And and most wineries behind the scenes, are, you know, as part of what that, how they're challenging themselves in, in, into making wine, are looking at um, you know the effect of a bit of skin contact. Um, Barrels using these alternative yeasts. So, for us with the Paper Nautilus, uh, we ferment the wine in a a single large format oak vessel. So, it holds uh, about 3,000 litres. So, it's the equivalent of 13 barrels in in one vessel. Uh, We hand pick the grapes rather than machine picking them, which is typical for the the classic style. And um, we ferment it a little bit warmer. So, what we're trying to do is actually dial. Down the volume on those punchy aromatics, um, but dial up the volume on texture, and so we're making a, a more restrained, savoury style of sauvignon, and, and that really comes up to its own on the dinner table, particularly because it, you know it comes a bit more versatile as a food match. And you know what we're saying is that you know we're not we're saying that that's better than the classic style. Um, we're just saying that certainly you know we don't want to see Marlborough. Sauvignon Blanc all lumped in one basket oh it's all the same um, far far from it, there's a lot of diversity even within the classic styles and we're starting to see this emergence of, of what's known as the alternative style of Sauvignon with more complexity
1: So moving on to uh, Pinot Noir which Marlborough is starting to get known for the style that they're really getting known for is that juicy, you know, uh, fruit-forward style. But we tried some stuff out of barrel, and you said even you might single barrel uh, or single single barrel a bottling of of some things you're playing with. So how are you getting away from the same old, same old Pinot Noir and making it different so that, you know, when I open a bottle, it I'm not going to just get what I expect?
3: Yeah, well again that's, that's been part of this learning curve we've been on in the last 15-20 years and um, perhaps when people think of New Zealand, Pinot Noir they might first think of Central Otago as the region that comes to mind and then you've got Martinborough um, which really pioneered the variety so um, you know, very small region but its focuses on Pinot. Um, one of Marlborough's perhaps issues is we were distracted by this insatiable Demand for Sauvignon Blanc, so we um, we were sort of started behind the eight ball in terms of developing our Pinot program. But but actually behind the scenes again, a lot of wineries were um, you know looking at planting Pinot on different soils. And you know over the last fifteen years we've learned where to grow it, and how to grow it, and it's and it's not a case of planting some Pinot alongside the Sauvignon. We're now looking for very specific soil types. Um, Moving typically off the valley floor onto the north-facing slopes of the southern valleys, not not seeking elevation, but seeking this clay-based soil rather than a gravel and stone-based soil, and and that's giving us some mid palate fruit weight and succulence. Um, the fruit flavours come easy. We're in New Zealand; we make fruity wines, and we're now starting to see the influence of having these explored these sites, work with them for the last fifteen years. We're seeing the influence of vine age, and it is really making a difference. The vines are just reaching a, a level of maturity where um, they're starting to you know, add, or, or, the, or the core structure of the wine's coming from the grape. It's not young, fruity vine, wine that's being propped up with a bit of French oak. Um, suddenly the, the oak is sort of falling into the background in a supporting role, and the structure and the core of the wine is coming from the fruit itself. And we're also starting to work more with uh, a whole bunch of component in the ferments, for instance, and that's just adding another layer to the to the tannins and, and improving the structure. And we're just seeing wines gaining a little bit more complexity, and it's it's actually really really exciting.
1: I would agree with that actually, because uh, that one barrel that you showed that you whole bunch pressed fifty uh, percent of the fruit, it was just it had it had so much good weight and good spice, and it just, it just wasn't that one note that I expect from Marlborough. Switching gears a little bit, because Andre's going to want to know, where does Chardonnay fit into this whole, uh, you know, program that you've got going, because obviously, on one hand, you've got the white of Sauvignon Blanc, on the other hand, you have Pinot Noir, suddenly there's some Chardonnay into this mix, where does Chardonnay fit into uh, the story of Marlborough?
3: Chardonnay's Marlboro is best kept secret, so just don't tell too many about it, too many people about it. But um, I mean, yeah, yeah, certainly. You know, we've obviously got Sauvignon and the um, and Pinot as the red, and actually Pinot Gris is um, became hugely popular in New Zealand and and brought a lot of focus as well. So so poor old Chardonnay pretty much got regulated to fourth place. Um, it is still the second most widely planted grape in New Zealand, but only just. Pinot Gris almost caught up, um, just about got neck and neck, and then there's been a little bit of a resurgence in interest in Chardonnay in the last few years. But I mean, I think, you know, Marlborough Chardonnay, um, it's, the flavours are citrus based, and you know, not, you don't get the big ripe peachy characters, It's it's, it's got this lovely restraint, um, it has the core... Um, acidity and, and we grow our Chardonnay off the stones and we, we do bust out the M word occasionally, we do think it has a minerality that, um, that, that gives it you know, merit but I, but I think what's happening with the modern Chardonnay that's coming out is that yes it has the complexity um, the oak is now imbalanced, it's not dominating um, so it has the complexity and intrigue but it also has freshness and it's the freshness on the palate that makes you want to go back for another glass so, like the you know the Chardonnays of old, which are big, blocky, chunky, you know, more is better, more oak, more alcohol, more flavour, more butteriness, um, and and you ended up with quite clumsy wines. Now the wines have got this nice restraint and elegance and freshness that actually means people want to come back and have another glass. And yeah, probably my favourite wine style.
1: I, I thought the M word would have been mallow, but that's yeah. that's yeah. all right. I'm just. just so I, I'm going to end this one off uh, because you're the first winery that I, I've gone to, obviously in, in, the, in the south, but, the f- well, I went to Palliser and they actually make a sparkling too. But your sparkling is the best sparkling in New Zealand. Am I correct on that?
3: Absolutely. It is a self-proclaimed title, but there's a bit of evidence to back it up, but, you know. Um, yeah, we've been making sparkling for, for over twenty years, and it is a traditional style. Um, and uh, I guess one of the well, a couple of the distinguishing characteristics about, characteristics about our wine is it's it's the blend is it's a non-vintage blend, but it's Pinot dominant. Um, most New Zealand sparklings are Chardonnay dominant, whereas we're Pinot dominant, and that gives it a bit of savouriness and structure. And it's got a relatively low dosage, so it's just slightly drier than normal as well, too. So that combines with this nice rich palate, elegance, long dry finish. Um, it's a wine that we don't do any promotional marketing with other than get it in people's hands. And talk to me about it. And Yeah, and people go, and they go, yeah, that's nice. And then they feel the need to tell someone about it. So we get people coming up and saying, i have be told I should try your, your sparkling wine, you know, and generally they like it as well too. Hence the best sparkling wine in New Zealand. Absolutely. And then you started uh,
1: not too long ago uh, uh, the Rosé Sparkling. Uh, how long ago that start? Uh, what was the impetus for doing, you know, one hundred percent Pinot uh, instead of a blanc de blanc?
3: Yeah, we twenty eleven when we looked at uh, perhaps doing another sparkling. Then we thought because we're a Pinot house, because our, our non vintage blend is Pinot based, then it seemed to make sense for us to do a wine based on Pinot rather than Chardonnay. So, and and rather than doing a blanc de, de noir, we we decided, well, let's make it a little bit pink, so I do a vintage rosé. So um, we extract a little bit of color out um, in the processing and make sure it's got that really nice pretty pink character and pink bubbles, what's not to like.
1: So you said that if I asked you a stupid question, you'd give me a stupid answer. So here's your stupid question. What's your favorite color of green?
3: Uh, Beige.
1: That's what I was looking for. Andre, this is uh, Clive Jones of Nautilus fantastic wines. We had a great time. We had a great dinner at Arbor. Uh, thank you very much, Clive.
3: Pleasure.
0: All right, so where's the next place that you went that you're going
1: to rub in my face? Andre, I'm here with uh, Fraser... Well, I put your last name. I'm here with Fraser McLaughlin, obviously a very Kiwi name there. <laughs> um, and uh, you asked me, you, you, you set me on a task to find interesting things. So we talked a little about Sauvignon Blanc that, we, that I've tried that was interesting. Uh, and you also said, are they making rosé in New Zealand? I can tell you they're making an absolute ton of rosé. Everybody's making rosé, and I've tried a bunch. And up until today, and this is my last day in the South Island, I would have told you that Mahi was making the best rosé I had tasted. But uh, I tasted, I'm tasted. i here at, at uh, Peregrine uh, Winery uh, with Frazier, and I can tell you his rosé, made from 100% Pinot Noir, all-estate, is the shit. Now, you've told me that the shit means good, so I'm going to have to go with you on that, or I'm going to look pretty foolish here. But I'm here with Fraser, and he was talking about a rosé revolution. So before you started making this particular wine in 2012, you were making another kind of rosé.
2: We were, Michael. So from early 2000s, we were making a much darker rosé, um, still 100% Pinot Noir, but in a completely different style with a much darker colouring.
1: And how were you achieving the darker coloring, and why were you going for that?
2: At the time, that was what the market was demanding. Um, we were extracting more color from the skin, so we were leaving the juice on the skins for much longer. Um, but that obviously all changed come sort of, 2012 for us.
1: So in 2012, the switch flipped, and what was the impetus to go for this you know, really light style, uh, as you called it, Provencal style pink.
2: So uh, we're a family business and my father at the time was running the winery and he was the real driving force behind this style. He, uh, he had spent some time over in France and he came back and said to the winemaker, this is the style that we need. So um, he was a driving force, as you can see. We've got a whole new package and I talked about how it was his writing um, which created the label. And he was the one that also drove that style purely off his trip to France.
1: Andre, I can tell you this is so dry, so beautiful. Uh, there's a slight hint of, of grapefruit as it sits in the glass, but there's also some strawberry, some cherry. This really is the bomb. Dot com, as you like to tell me. Um, and it's not one of my you know travel. It's one of my travel epiphanies, and it's not one of these things where I'm leaving the island, so I've got to find a great rosé. This is great, Rosé. How is the market um, reacting to this style?
2: Well, like I said to you, there's a real revolution. So since 2012, we've increased our production to meet demand um, fivefold. So we started out with a couple hundred cases, and we're now at 1,500, and the market has absorbed everything we can possibly make. So um, it's going really well. So
1: you, you told me this is a seasonal release. You don't try and keep this on your shelf all year long.
2: Correct. Uh, there's markets where rosé is popular year-round. New Zealand has four seasons, so um, rosé is not really a winter-style wine. So we release in October at the start of our summer, or our start of our spring, and then it's all gone by the end of March.
1: So the name Peregrine is obviously about a, it's a falcon. It's a, it's a bird. Uh, and then you have two other labels, and actually we're going to be seeing one of those in Ontario. So why don't you tell us a little bit about the Sauvignon Blanc that we're going to be seeing.
2: So... Uh, The Sauvignon Blanc that you'll see is our Mohoa label, and the Mohoa is a native bird in New Zealand, and we've taken that name for our label. Uh, The style of Sauvignon Blanc is um, a really round, juicy, tropical style, but distinctly um, regional-specific, and it's made in Marlborough, so you'll know the Marlborough style, and and it's true to that.
1: And then he also has a label that we'll never see in Canada called Saddleback, and that's because there is a a winery in... Uh, California called Saddleback and I, and I think Saddleback you should, you should give peregrine back their name um, or let them at least have it because uh, it's a beautiful little Pinot Noir and again so just to give a little a shout out uh, for this Saddleback bird you're actually doing something really special because Saddleback is a bird. It's, tell us about the bird and what you guys are doing to help this, this creature.
2: Absolutely. So the Saddleback's a native robin, um, native only to the South Island of New Zealand as uh, the mahoe is as well, and these two wee birds uh, got down to an almost extinct level um, until we started doing some work with our native uh, Department of Conservation here in New Zealand. So we're doing some work to create habitats for them where they're pest-free. And, and
1: what um, what preys on the saddleback, and why does it need this kind of protection?
2: So the saddlebacks a, a very friendly little bird, and uh, it's vulnerable to Ferrets and rats and stoats um, who will either prey on the bird or their eggs. So, we're doing some work to remove those from the habitats and allow them to flourish again.
1: So, uh, Andre, back to this rose. Um, I'm trying to get Fraser to talk longer so I could drink more of his rose, but he seems to be keeping his answers also short because he's got a glass of rose in his hand. So, I've decided to cut this interview a little bit short so that we can enjoy rosé while you freeze in the cold. Thank you very much, Fraser.
2: It's a pleasure. Nice to talk to you.
0: And now your last interview that you did from New Zealand brings another repeat guest to the show. So let's get to it.
1: Andre, um, I I wanted to do an interview uh, with uh, Matt Mitchell of Morisco like we had before. But uh, I understand he avoided us last time he came to Toronto because you got so drunk you stole his glasses. So I had to come all the way to uh, to New Zealand to find him in this uh, Morisco facility. So Matt, hello again. G'day. There we go. So, um, so we're sitting here trying the 2017 um, King's Desire Pinot that you and I went absolutely squirrely over and i can tell you i think the 17 is actually better than the 16 so matt tell me a little bit about uh the desire and how it has uh, been a big it's, it has become a bigger brand for you originally it was just mostly in canada but now you've decided to to launch it a little bit more so uh let's let's start there
4: awesome uh yeah so you know i think uh Comparatively, vintage-wise, 17 was a much trickier time. Uh, Really, really challenging vintage. But I think a large chunk of the quality uptake in this wine is really around our learnings of what we got out of 16. Um, As you say, nice to see the market responding. I think there's some real interest in rosé, particularly in our part of the world. And what's really cool... um, customers are prepared to pay a little bit more for something they perceive to have a little bit more value add. So, um, you know, that puts the program in, in a really strong stead. And um, and I think what we're doing and, and the success we're getting out of it, I think, is sort of encouraging us from a, from a technical aspect as well.
1: So while we were tasting this, uh, Andre, I sent you that picture, and, uh, and you sent back some pretty mean things. So although this is coming into Ontario, I believe uh, Matt has already – Uh, texted and emailed and phoned, believe it or not, the LCBO, and said you are not allowed to get any and that they are to check your house uh, for any bottles. So sadly, you will not be trying the 17 in any way. There is another wine, though, that's really interesting here. It's called the King's Bastard, and it is a Chardonnay. And you said that you're having problems worldwide with it. What is that problem?
4: I guess um, putting a cuss word on a a label is... uh Somewhat limiting from a, from a marketing standpoint. Um, Kiwis, and our honesty, maybe brashness, um, you know, we try these things. Uh, the authorities um, have their opinions on these sort of things. So, uh, yeah, in most of the world, increasingly, this wine's known as the King's Legacy. Uh, Australia, New Zealand, we, we, we're still comfortable with um, the odd cuss word. So, yeah, King's Bastard rules in
1: this part of the world. There are a lot of bastards here, Andre, and I think uh, I think you know who we're talking about. Uh, moving right along, there's uh, there's a new project afoot here at Morisco, and it is... Um, uh, just just tell us about it, just how, in your own words, this this whole, I guess, Lee Field project.
4: Yeah, um, actually, coincidentally, about the time I started with the company, the, um, the management team at the time had acknowledged the fact that the company had grown to a point where... To sustain the level of growth, they needed more land, and um, the company has always had a had a philosophy to to produce fruit from its own properties to, to maintain that level of control. Um, so at the time, they were looking for a significant um, land purchase to to, uh, to continue the growth of the company. And um, the night I signed my contract um, with Brent at his cottage at Benmoreven at our little Pinot vineyard. Um, he'd just come from a uh, a little ceremony, I guess, um, where they'd signed the um, sale and purchase agreement of Leefield Station. It's a uh, very historic um, sheep and beef station here in the Waihopai Valley of Marlborough, uh, two thousand two hundred hectares, so a significant property, um, and um, probably one of the last significant single tracts of land, vineyard land, uh, in Marlborough. So um, you know, just a fantastic. Thing to have in your uh, in your stable of of, of land and um, and now vineyard land.
1: Are you allowed to tell us how big that is?
4: Yeah. So yeah, two thousand two hundred hectares, of which there's about uh, just a little over six hundred hectares of sort of readily plantable flatland um, and then there's a range of sort of small and very steep slopes. Um, most of the steeper high country will be retained as. Um, a sheep and beef farming, uh, which we think adds a nice sort of um, a little bit of colour and flavour to our to our uh, our business. Um, but equally, some of the sort of the less severe sloping land at the back of the property does afford opportunities for some sort of really high class sort of Chardonnay and Pinot vineyard sites, and there's possibilities for some alternative varieties as well. That does not mean
1: you're adding any beef tallow into any of the wines, correct?
3: No,
4: no, but um, it makes coming to Marisco Vineyards and uh, sharing a barbecue and a glass of wine a whole lot more fun when, um, you know, you can tell the same story to, to the beef as you can to the Pinot.
1: So uh, just an, another thing that we uh, we briefly touched upon while we were here. I know that Andre is not a huge fan of, uh, of Sauvignon Blanc, and he wanted me to come back with some news that Sauvignon Blanc isn't all gooseberry, grassy, underripe, green pepper... Uh, notes. And you showed me the uh, Pride and Glory series. Uh, Explain that to us.
4: Okay, I think um, like a good many um, sort of forward-looking companies in Marlborough, um, there was a genuine interest in alternative Sauvignon Blanc styles. And um, back in 2011, there was a parcel of fruit that hit the winery that just um, showed some really special fruit qualities. And rather than sort of incorporate it into the sort of regular processing structure that we would put the Ned or our King series of wines through, um, they kind of threw out the Marlborough rule book. And rule, rule book. That's it.
1: We have been drinking most of the day, so he, what he meant to say was rule book.
4: Thank you, thank you. My, my tongue is swelling in my head as we speak. Um, yeah, so they took a, a deliberately uh, alternative approach to this wine, and it's really formed the basis of what's become the craft series, um, where... From a Sauvignon Blanc point of view, we're trying all sorts of different techniques to, to build some complexity into these wines, and ultimately end up with something that is um, genuinely worthy of some medium long term bottle age. That the wine will grow in the bottle in a positive sense, and avoid all those sort of can peed asparagusy kind of um, characters that um, perhaps has dogged you know aging Sauvignon Blanc for a long time in the bottle.
1: And then finally, uh, most people may not recognize the well may recognize the name the need um which it is called down here it was really funny i was driving in the car and there was some uh restaurant that said hey come on in and uh, we'll give you a burger and a glass of the need so uh we get that in in ontario as well uh you've added a new uh part of of the need and um what, what is a, what is available now in the need and what may be available in Ontario in the future and now?
4: Yeah, so really exciting. I think um, we, you know, we've expanded the range. Um, we're now into our third vintage of uh, Pinot Rosé, uh, which is a sneaky little blend of Pinot Gris and uh, Pinot Noir, made in a bright, fruity-based rosé style. Um, and then in 2016, for the first time ever, we've um, launched a Ned Chardonnay. So... Um, uh, really, really exciting. It's been um domestically distributed only in two thousand and sixteen but um like all things need, um there's a very clear plan to, to, to grow the volume and to uh explore the, the, the kind of style that we want there and um and take it to the world.
1: Now do you know if we'll be seeing the Chardonnay in uh in Ontario anytime?
4: Oh, that's probably a bit beyond my mandate, I suppose. Um I I think it's highly likely, but um I, I couldn't say.
1: Andre, if I end up trying the Ned Chardonnay, I'm not going to tell you anything about it. You'll have to learn about it yourself. Uh, I'd like to thank Matt once again for being on uh, with this and, and dealing with my ridiculousness here. And Andre, uh, we have choice words for you at this end, but we are not. I'm not going to say them. Matt, do you have anything to say to Andre? Love you, bro. Oh, jumping.
0: I know you're not going to be bringing me anything back from this trip because if I... Had you actually bring back every bottle that I've texted you or messaged you, I hope you bring me something of that, you would be paying probably $1,000 in duty. But we can look forward to getting uh, Matt Mitchell's Pinot Noir Rosé in the LCBO. Is that correct?
1: That is true. That, uh, that one that we both went gaga over last year is coming back. Uh, and uh, as Matt and I discussed, you have been cut off from buying any. He is, is putting uh, emails into the LCBO now that you are not allowed to buy any
0: so, it's okay I've got people who buy some for me I'll, I'll take care of it I'll figure it out I mean my heart's a little bit no. broken that you guys would throw me under the bus like that but I really shouldn't be surprised at this point in our relationship
1: Andre here's what I'll do I'll make it up to you by uh, by cracking one of those balls of sparkling wine with you because I am bringing some of that stuff back
0: you know what I actually think that's fair that's actually I think the nicest thing you've ever said to me on this podcast I'm going to mark this date well. down <laughs>
1: Yeah, there's some really good sparkling. You're going to have to fight Erica for it. But, uh, uh, yeah, we'll open one with you.
0: All right. So the next time you and I connect, I think we're going to be talking a bit about your adventures in Australia, where we can talk a bit about Australian Shiraz, which this is not something that I personally have a hate on for. But I recently did some research and have seen that Canadians love of Australian wines has been waning over the past five years. And we'll that see if maybe you can get to the bottom of it and find some good stuff to get Canadians to go nuts for Australia again.
1: Yeah, I was actually already in the place called the Southern Highlands, which is interesting. We'll talk about that. And I'm also going to Orange, Canberra, and... Um, uh, in the Hunter Valley. Although I'm, I'm told I'm saying Canberra wrong, and I'm not sure why I'm saying it wrong. Well, I'm sure Canberra, we'll do an interview.
0: Canberra. Yeah, we'll do an interview with know. someone who can explain that to you. And I know that uh, I've been giving you some shit on, on not using enough Instagram. So hopefully, if our listeners check you out at the Grape Guy on Twitter and on Instagram, you're posting more photos because I know you're, you're, you're actually being too polite. You said that you didn't want to bombard people with photos, but come on, when you're traveling like that, show off, make us all envious.
1: Well, I, I did that once, DeAndre, and, and, I, and I embarrassed you, so.
0: Well, wouldn't be the first time. Anyways, you can follow Michael's <laughs> adventures at com. Follow him on his social media, at The Grape Guy. I'm Andre Prue from AndreWineReview.ca And, Michael, you got anything else to
1: say? Yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to not say the usual good night because it's now 1045. So, good morning. It's 26 degrees out. Oh.